it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, I appreciate a good underdog story, and there may not be a better underdog story than the one going on with the four remaining Pac 12 schools. We'll talk some football on today's show, but we're also going to talk about whether or not Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal can put the band back together, or can put Humpty Dumpty back together for that matter. What is the role of George Klyovkov, if any, with the remaining Pac-4 schools? Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, is going to come on the show in the 4 o'clock hour. And I suspect that Barnes is going to express his frustration. I suspect he's going to tell you that he's been working hard behind the scenes, he and his team. I suspect he's going to unveil some of the inner workings of uh, what has gone on in the last week or so with Oregon State and Washington State in particular. And I'm going to ask him questions. Can you trust Stanford? Can you trust Cal? Hell, can you trust anybody in today's college football world? Yeah, it's a football world, and the rest of us are living in it. Scott Barnes will be with us in the 4 o'clock hour. But I want to ask you a question in front of that. As it pertains to the four, the remaining four, I have heard some people argue that it's better just to let the conference dissolve, better to just move forward, let it die, let it disintegrate. It's too hard. It's too difficult a task to try to reassemble it. Without Oregon and Washington, without USC and UCLA in particular, you know, the tent poles are gone. The tent is on the ground. What are you doing? Can you is it possible even to put it back together? Now, that's one one line of thinking. I've heard others argue that it would be awfully inspiring to see the four remaining schools lean into the NCAA tournament revenues, lean into some of the Assets, other assets of the conference, they've got some other revenue streams that if they walk away from it, it they, they basically are walking away from 60 to $70 million in revenue. Do you use that revenue? And do you lean into Oliver Luck to try to put the four schools back together and start adding San Diego State, SMU, Colorado State, whoever else you can add? Do you, do you find that to be at all inspiring, interesting? In a world of college football where everybody's saying you either have to be with the haves or you're with the have-nots, is it possible that the four schools could ask a different question and just go, why not? Why not put it back together? Is it better than going to the Mountain West Conference and accepting that, hey, in the Mountain West Conference you're going to probably be a bigger fish in a medium-sized pond, you still have access to the college football playoff, but you're losing revenue, massive amounts of revenue. I actually find what they're trying to do, at least as a first option, inspiring. It's not like Rocky on the steps in Philadelphia with his arms raised, you know, going to fly now, all that. But it's pretty inspiring to see what Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal may try to do. But again, I come back to the idea, can you trust Stanford to stick around? How long will they be part of it? Is that a risk that Scott Barnes and Oregon State are willing to take, that they get down a path that includes rebuilding the Pac-4, and then look over and see Stanford going, oh, no, we got an invitation to the ACC now, or we got an invitation to the Big Ten now. 
Now we're out. Good luck trying to rebuild that without the Bay Area TV market. There's something there if the four schools can find it. I think it's a long shot, but Oliver Luck being involved makes me feel better about it. And I'll ask Scott Barnes all the important and hard questions when he joins us in the 4 o'clock hour. I want to hear from you. Is it worth the attempt? Is that a good plan A for Oregon State? And again, I don't think they have much time here. I think it's a matter of, like, you got to figure this out before they kick off the football season. you got to know what direction you're heading. You need to know, you need to be able to recruit during the football season and tell tell prospective players where you're going to be playing. So I, I feel like they've got, you know, the better part of maybe five to seven to ten days, maybe 14 days to try to figure out can they put the four schools back together. And then you either have to, at that fork in the road, pivot towards the Mountain West Conference or the American or doing something else. 503-417-7575, answer me this. Do you find it at all inspiring if Oregon State and Washington State take a it's-us-against-the-world approach and bring Stanford and Cal into the fold and say, okay, it's the four of us, we're the Fantastic Four, the Final Four, the Four Forgotten, whatever you want to call them, four, whatever you want to call them, they are the last four remaining Pac-12 schools. And is that at all inspiring if they try to put it together, or do you find it disappointing and sad altogether? I also have been talking with a lot of people about this coming Pac-12 season. And it's an interesting theme has come up that surprises me. I was talking to my buddy John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. We do a podcast, Konzano and Wilner the Podcast, as it's named. And on the podcast, he said that, you know, he wonders what this season means. Is it a meaningful season, given that everyone's scattering? And... I took a, I took objection to that. Like I actually think, like a a great um you know a great metaphor for this upcoming Pac-12 season, is kind of rooted in the, the the shows that we all stream and watch. I don't know if you watch Sopranos, Tony Soprano, Bada Bing. Were you a fan of Polly Walnuts? Um, if you watch The Sopranos, you know that as the final season, and the series finale for Sopranos approached, there was a lot of different feelings and theories on how. They would end it, and everybody tuned in. Everybody was interested in it, but you could you could please almost nobody by the way that you ended that Sopranos series. Same went for Breaking Bad and Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. Like, there was no pleasing everybody if Walter White ended up going to prison or ended up blown up in a meth lab or ended up getting away and, you know, going off with Gus to Mexico. Like, it, it, there was no pleasing everybody in the end of Breaking Bad. And in fact, as you watch that series unfold, there was a finality to it that felt weird. And and I think that same kind of feeling applies to this Pac-12 season. There are some people who are attaching huge meaning to the season. It's the final one. It's the last chance. There will be one more true Pac-12 champion crowned in Las Vegas. There are others who are going, hey, because it doesn't have a bridge to 2024, and it's ending now, The there's no cartilage in this season, and therefore it breaks down a little bit. And I was on the phone with Mike Bellotti, the former Oregon coach, earlier today, and he kind of fell into that, that second camp. He says, I don't know how meaningful it feels. I don't know how important this season is. Everybody's saying it's important, but it feels less than important in a weird way. And John Wilner said the same thing. So I want to bounce that off you as well. How important 
does this season feel to you? Does it take a greater importance that there will be nothing after it that resembles anything before it? Or does it take a less than important feel and all that matters is if somebody gets to the college football playoff? You tell me at 503-417-7575. I happen to think the season and the series finales matter. But you're right. Like For people who go, hey, you know what? Season 2 of you know the the Sopranos ended and it left you like with a cliffhanger. You waited until season three to get it. Same with Breaking Bad, but the series finale comes along, and you are uh, Game of Thrones. Even you are you are the buildup for it is so great that there's no pleasing anybody. The buildup for this Pac-12 football season has been terrific too. Five teams ranked in the top 18. Terrific quarterbacks, including the return of the Heisman Trophy winner, Caleb Williams. Bo Nix at Oregon on a billboard in, in New York City now. You know, bodacious as it goes. You have all this buildup. Michael Penix Jr., will he be the number one pick in the NFL draft? Like, there's all this tremendous buildup. And then behind it, certainly a letdown of epic proportions as 108 years of history goes away. So you tell me, this Pac-12 football season, more important Less important, insignificant, significant in your mind, in the greater picture. Mike Bellotti says it feels less important. John Wilner says it feels less important. I say, are you kidding me? This feels like it's bigger than any season that's come before it. Somebody's going to go down in history as the final Pac-12 champion as we know them. Where college football is going, though, is undeniable. And maybe in the big picture... What comes next in the Big Ten Conference for Oregon and Washington? What comes next in the SEC and the Big 12 as Arizona, Arizona State, Utah and Colorado scatter in one direction? What comes next for the four remaining schools that are left behind? Certainly has become a bigger story in this preseason than any of the quarterbacks, any of the teams. The offenses and defenses that we're most often talking about are the ones inside the athletic department. 503-417-7575. You tell me, are you inspired at all, by the thought that the Pac-4 could try to rebuild? Or does it kind of go, eh, you know, doesn't do anything for me? Also, this season, more or less significant in your mind, has it lost something that there's nothing coming behind it? 503-417-7575. we got a great show for you today. Judah Newby, i got to know, i got to know, i got to know. When you look at this season, more or less significant in your mind? Man, you're getting me fired up today John gosh it's so it's so significant it's so significant I can't help but think and I might have had a different opinion if the teams weren't as good if the quarterbacks weren't as damn good in this conference as they are this year compared to the rest of the con- country of course it has uh, greater significance because it is the last one we're talking about 108 years here you know we're not talking about like some team that only played in the American League for 15 years going to the National League all of a sudden. You know, it's it's not like that. This is 108 years of epic college football history that's going to be um, – that that's culminating in this. And it's it sucks that it's the last year, but once you move past that initial, you know, uh, disappointment, this has an incredible feel to it. I just think it's going to culminate Civil War, Black Friday in Autzen Stadium – DJ on one side, Mateo Uyunglele on the other side, Dan Landing on one sideline, Jonathan Smith on the other. It's going to be a tie game. Five minutes left as the twilight is settling in, and Yormark gets the game on Fox, of course, and we're all just looking at each other. We're looking around the stadium, and we're like, this is it. Like, this is it. This is this is the 
epic finish to the Pac-12 football season we were all hoping for. I just visualized that happening, and, and I'm getting chills thinking about it. I really agree with you that this has the highest stakes it could possibly have. I, I just think there's going to be one more name put on the trophy. And, you know, and I and I understand, like, you know, because Mike Bellotti sounded sad about kind of the, the downfall of the Pac-10, Pac-12, all the history, all of that. You know, I, he's not knocking where Oregon's taking it. I think I, he and I see it the same way in that way that, you know, we all kind of understand that Oregon did what was best for Oregon. But and now the others must do what's best for themselves. But I also think like this season has to mean something. It ha- every season has to have meaning. And I and I and I mean that going into like that's why like the Trailblazers, for example, in the NBA. That's why this upcoming season feels so sad to me, or may- maybe a little bit hollow, because we all know the Damian Lillard thing is is lingering. We know that the Blazers aren't going to win an NBA championship. So I'm 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 desperately searching for meaning in their season, and the meaning that I find is okay. This is where the Blazers find their footing. This is where they make the deal that sets them up for their future. They trade Damian Lillard. They get the draft picks that they had coveted, or the young prospects they have coveted, and the meaning will come in what the Blazers do from a roster standpoint, not what they do on the court. So the meaning in this Pac-12 season is really interesting because I think on one hand you've got some teams that are probably highly motivated to go out and kick ass. Oregon State is going to show up to play. And I think I think all the teams and players are going to show up and try to win, but I just think as a program, as a university, Washington State and Oregon State have the biggest chips on their shoulder. It's why the Apple Cup and the Civil War games, I think, are going to be really interesting because they not only feature the two teams that got left behind, they feature the you know two teams that are playing with the chip on their shoulder, on the road, in what could be the final rivalry game played in some time. And I I think that's going to be really interesting. Do you think it matters more for one of these teams to win the conference? You know, like, will will the conference season matter more if Oregon State ends up holding the trophy at the end of it as opposed to Utah holding it for a third straight time? I I think players probably will all say it's meaningful to them. They all want to win. They all want to compete. Coaches probably say the same thing. But I think when you look at fan bases, I think the Oregon State fan base is probably more engaged in it than the Oregon fan base because the Oregon fan base, I think, is peeking ahead a little bit to the Big Ten and going, okay, you know, the the expanded playoff, the, those at-large bursts, the investment in recruiting, uh, got good footing. Obviously, Phil Knight will subsidize whatever Phil Knight needs to subsidize as the as the program lands in the Big Ten conference. Like I think Oregon fan is peeking ahead, and Oregon State fan is going. This may be all we have here and now this season, and it may be all we have for a while. And I think there is, uh, you know, a uh, I think a real temptation here. And we'll and I'll ask Scott Barnes that, you know, coming up uh, in the four o'clock hour. I think there's a real temptation for Oregon State fan to kind of view this as, you know, the final chapter of the Pac-12 and an important one in their book. And everybody else is going, yeah, it's important, but. We we have Big 12 business to tend to next season, or we have Big 10 business to tend to next season, and where is college football going, and we need to recruit with an eye towards that. And, mm. you know, Oregon State might lose. Like, if Oregon State doesn't get its feet underneath it, it might lose a bunch of players in the transfer portal. It may, may There may be a threat that Jonathan Smith could say, you know what, uh, first Power 5 job, that it's a real Power 5 job, and, you know, I'm out of here. Like, I'll ask Scott Barnes all those things. Is he worried about Jonathan Smith? Is he worried about the transfer portal? How important is it for Oregon State, if they're going to do a rebuild, to get their feet underneath them? And then, and then you know, lingering in the background is August 30th. It's an important date in the college football world. You know, we're a couple of weeks away from this meeting 
where the college football playoff, you know, governors, so to speak, are all going to meet. It's the, uh, you know, the Power Five Conference Commissioners plus the Group of Five Conference Commissioners plus Notre Dame's Jack Swarbrick, and they're going to meet, and they're supposed to, they were supposed to hammer out, like, some of the final details and the final distributions for the expanded playoff in 2024, but we're now being told that because the Pac-12 might not be a thing, probably won't be a thing, likely won't be a thing, and definitely won't be a thing in in its current form, uh, that some of the discussion that day will will relate to whether or not uh, they should be taking away the automatic berth for the Pac-12 conference. I think there's some real urgency on behalf of the remaining four schools to get their act together because August 30th, they're going to want a voice in that room. And I'm not sure it's George Klyovkov's voice that should be in the room. Maybe it should be Oliver Luck. <laughs> Can we zoom in Oliver Luck to that meeting? Is that possible? Is that at all possible to get Feels a like Pac-4 advocate of, of some kind? I thought that was inevitable, college football playoff reformation, even past the you know the initial restructure that they did. I thought that was possible even after Colorado left. Do you think that the college football playoff would have just stayed put if, you know, with the Pac-10 being the Pac-10 without, you know, reforming itself even further and the Pac-10 still would have gotten the automatic qualifier? I think it would be hard for the other conferences to take that automatic five status from the Pac-12 if Oregon, Washington, Utah, you know, uh, the Arizona schools were part of the conference because they've lost eight of 12 members, 75% of your membership including the LA schools, now you have a really strong argument that the makeup of the conference is not, you know, it's less than half of what it was. And so uh, I think they have a real problem there and they're going to have to advocate for themselves. And that's why I think, you know, it's not a matter of weeks, really. Like I say, they have, you know, five, seven, 14 days. I also think like that five, seven, 14 days is important because they're going to need to go into that room and they're ne- they're going to need to say, hey, look, don't strip us of, of our status the NCAA says we have a two-year grace period to put this conference back together. You know, give us a shot to put the conference back together and see if they get some empathy from the ACC, some empathy from the SEC, and maybe the Big Ten has so much blood on its hands that it doesn't. You know, it says, "All right, we're you know we give you a little bit of a grace period. We'll we'll take a look in a year and see what your makeup of your conference is. And if it looks too much like a group of five, then you're going to lose that automatic bid. But as it stands right now, it is the top." six conference champions who will get into the playoff with automatic bids and then there are six at large berths so it's a six plus six to get to 12 what the uh some of the conference commissioners are talking about now is going to top five conference champions take away the pac-12's automatic berth and then seven at larges and that and that's great for what the big 10 and the SEC in particular, who are going to argue, hey, we have 18 and 16 members all of a sudden. <laughs> and, and you know, hey, we've got more members. We should get more bids. And so they're going to want those at-large berths because they're going to want to take them away from a conference like the Pac-4, who, you know, in its current form with Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, and Washington State, you can't argue they deserve an automatic bid. But if they could piece it together some way and make that argument between now and August 30th, they may get the others to go, okay, let's go with the 6 plus 6 just for now, and we'll revisit it in a year. And I think that would be a huge benefit to attracting schools like San Diego State and SMU if you're the Pac-12 because you want to sell the idea, hey, conference champions getting into the playoff. And you can't do that without having that A5 status in, in the current uh, makeup of the uh, college football playoff. And by the way, those 
those other conferences, the uh, the power four, so to speak, who are left over, they've got an incredible amount of, uh, of power. It only takes three of four votes, three of those four, to say, hey, uh, you're no longer an automatic five for the Pac-12 to be out. But it will be a really interesting discussion. I was told by one conference commissioner today, I will literally read you part of the text message that was sent to me by a conference commissioner who was uh, going to be in on those meetings. Um, This is what the person said. I don't think the CFP August 30th meeting will have a resolution on that, but we're likely going to start the discussion. But I think it's going to take more than one meeting. Ideally, um, for the schools uh, moving forward, tactically, like Oregon State, you're going to need to know where you're playing. Beyond that, you want to have that automatic bid in in a path to the playoff in your corner. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. So much more ahead. I really do think there's something to Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal trying to rebuild the Pac-4. And I think if I were in that position, I probably would explore that avenue first, given that there's a whole bunch of NCAA tournament revenue that will flow in in the next six years, including whatever the conference earns this NCAA tournament. Those units are spread out over six years, and uh, those units are worth about $333,000 apiece. You get a unit for every game you play in. So, for example, if uh, UCLA and Arizona advance multiple rounds in the NCAA tournament this year, that's 333000 plus 333000 plus 333000 and then you get paid those units over six years. And so it, it you know it's 60 or $70 million that it amounts to that is sitting along with the emergency funds in the conference. There were $44 million in emergency funds that were in the conference uh, bank account in their uh, rainy day fund prior to the pandemic. Nobody knows or nobody seems to want to tell me how much is left now. I can, I guess I have to wait for the conference's 990 form to be filed. But I, I, you know, I'm trying to get a handle on how much money do they have in the emergency fund. Is it enough to offset or subsidize the fact that their media rights deal that they would land, any media rights deal they would land would be uh, below market value? You know, keep in mind, these schools got about $30 million each this uh, last year in media rights distributions from the Pac-12, they'll get $30 million plus this year in media rights distributions. They'll get another 5 to $7 million per school in postseason revenue, including the NCAA tournament. So they should, they should see revenues of about 35 to $37 million each. Okay, that's the forecast. So if you're Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal, You have to find a way, if you're going to start the conference back up again, or even if you're not, if you're going to the Mountain West, you're going to the American, wherever you land, you have to find a way to get that number up around $35 million. If you don't, you have to turn to your university and say, subsidize us, please. And you don't want to do that, because that's not sustainable. That's no way to live. So what I think the four remaining schools might try to do is A, go, all right, let's make a two-year run at this. How much is in the rainy day fund? If we split that four ways, if you invite in other schools, if you uh, lean into the postseason revenue, how close can you get to the $35 million a year distribution? Can you get a media deal that's worth $10 million a year, uh, $12 million a year, depending on which schools you bring in? 
Uh, do you keep your A5 bid? I mean, you have to explore all that, and I realize it's a long shot, but you have to explore all that, I think, before you pivot and go, okay, let's go to the Mountain West or, or the American, where you know you're going to get about 5 or $7 million a year from the Mountain West Conference, and you know you're going to get about maybe 10 or $12 million a year from the American, but you're going to have some real travel expense in the American because you're going to be shipping your uh, non-revenue-generating sports all over the country. So it's a real it's a real dilemma, and there's no clean answer, but I'm going to try to get some answers from Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, coming up. Let's go to the phone lines. I want your calls. Do you believe in it? Does it inspire you? Or is it? Uh, are you shaking your head going, you know, the world is moving on without these four schools, and they should just come to grips with the fact that the Mountain West is what, you know, is what is available to them. I don't blame them a bit for trying to uh, shoot for the stars, even if it means they're going to hit a lamppost. 503-417-7575 is a number. Let's go to Matt and Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Matt, what do you think? Hey, John, I think that this season, uh, the way it's going to be remembered is very much dependent on, on who the players are, who's winning. I think if it comes down to USC playing Oregon uh, in the Pac-12 championship, I don't think it's going to be remembered as much because these teams are, are taking off for the Big 12 and the Big 10. And, but I think if Oregon State comes in and it comes down to the Civil War, Oregon versus Oregon State, and they're playing for who goes to the Pac-12 championship, and it becomes a David versus Goliath, and Oregon State wins that. And I know that's fantasy land, but you know if Oregon State beats Oregon and then beats USC – takes home the Pac-12 championship. I'm an Oregon State fan, so obviously I'm going to think that that is hugely significant. But I think in that scenario, people will remember, you know, the David versus Goliath. They rose up, beat all these teams, said, screw you to all these teams that are leaving the conference. And Oregon State comes out and, who knows, makes the college football playoff. DJ Youngle is just lights out, remembers why he was a five-star prospect. That's my, that's my fantasy yeah. of how this season could go. And I think then, man, the significance yeah. of that season for the Pac-12 would be amazing. Selfishly, I, I love the call, but selfishly, I would love to see Oregon and Oregon State both undefeated playing in the Civil War game at Autzen Stadium and a rematch in Vegas for the conference championship. It could happen in that scenario. You'd have to probably be both undefeated. Maybe you could have a one-loss team that could get to Vegas with two losses uh, I think any more than that, you're on the outside looking in. But I, there may be some carnage this year in the in the uh, in the conference play. And I do think Oregon and Oregon State have very favorable schedules when you line them up against Washington and Utah. A lot of people, I hear a lot of enthusiasm for Washington right now, and I get it. Michael Penix Jr. is great. Uh, Kalen DeBoer, eleven and two last season, statement season in year one. Lost a game they probably shouldn't have lost in the middle of the season that just was puzzling. That you know, people are picking Washington to get to the playoff. They're that good. But I look at their November, and they have to go on the road and play USC, Utah, and Oregon State in back-to-back-to-back games. Two of them on the road, and I'm just I'm not seeing Washington getting through that gauntlet undefeated. I and and there could be multiple losses in those three games. And I kind of think that that's where their season potentially derails. The pace of their season, I don't like. I don't like that it's loaded up like a tube of toothpaste. That you know, at the end of it, they're going to have a problem, I think. Uh, and and so I look more at you know, I, yesterday I was asked, gun to my head, who plays in the conference championship game, and I said, well, it's hard to pick against USC, and I'll take Oregon State. 
because I, I think they have the easiest schedule. But after that, it's Oregon for me. So I kind of like I, I'll say what I said on the show the other day. I think the winner of the Civil War football game at Autzen Stadium on that Friday, right after Thanksgiving on Black Friday, I think the winner of that game is going to Vegas. I think that winner of that game is going to play for the conference championship. I, it just feels like a playoff game for me. Let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575 is a number. Steve is in Dallas. Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, John. I was just curious about uh, what BYU did. If the Beavers or any of the Pac-4 could put some teams in the Mountain West non-football or coast for non-football and be in football. Yeah, you're breaking up, but I got the question. He's asking, Could is it possible that the Beavers or uh, – tell me if you think I'm wrong here, Judah, but I think he's asking about the non-revenue-generating sports. I'll try him again. Trying to play some of those non-revenue-generating sports in the Mountain West Conference. Steve, am I reading that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, Mountain West or Pacific Coast is kind of like what BYU did. Yes. Okay, yeah, I get the question. You're breaking up a little bit, but I get the question. It's a possibility. I think it's a possibility. I, You know, I took a call from Chris Hill, the former Utah AD, the other day. He called me at like 6.01 right after the show. 6.01. He knew I was on air, and he was mad. He was furious. He's the, he was the AD at Utah when Utah joined the Pac-12 conference. He was so mad at the presidents and, and chancellors of the Pac-12 conference. He just went off saying that none of them are thinking. They're not asking the hard questions. They're not willing, the ADs aren't willing to stand up and say, you know what, this is wrong that football's dragging 5,000 non-revenue generating sport athletes into uh, the Big 12 and the Big 10 conference. And he said what the presidents and chancellors should have done at Oregon and Washington is say, hey, we want to play football in the Big 10. We want everything else to be in the Pac-12. We'll take $5 million a year less to do it or whatever the value they place on non-revenue-generating sports in that media deal, and you splinter away football, and you go play football in the Big Ten Conference, and you leave Mark Wasikowski's baseball team, and you leave Kelly Graves' basketball team, women's basketball team, you leave them playing in the Pac-12 Conference, and you go off and play your football. And he said that would have been the move, that the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors should have raised their voices and said, hey, you know what? We are leaving the conference, but we would like to leave uh, only in football and because that's what makes sense. And I think they would have gotten way less blowback for blowing up all the history and the tradition. They would have taken a little less money. Sure. You know, maybe the Big Ten Conference tells Oregon and Washington, hey, we can't give you $35 million a year over the next six years, but we'll give you $30 million a year, and we'll only take the football teams, and everything else has to stay behind. Could that have resulted in an Apple TV deal for the non-revenue-generating sports that stayed behind in the Pac-12, Chris Hill, the former Utah AD, told me, why isn't anybody asking that? It's a good point. Like, we all know that football, at some point soon, is going to separate from everything else. And I think that's what, you know, a conference commissioner who I asked, I said, what happens in 10 years and 15 years? Conference commissioner in another conference, not in the Pacific time zone, said to me, I think everybody comes back. I think the geography ultimately wins. I think those schools that left, they all come back, or at least the non-revenue-generating sports come back. They play as the Pacific 12 or the Pacific 10, and football just goes and does its own thing. It makes sense to me that there would be an upper division, an AFC and an NFC, 
the ESPN division and the Fox division that you know will go play their own thing and everything else will go back to being college sports or college athletics as we once knew it. I mean, you know, Chip Kelly was spitting truth when he said that. Like, you know, hey, why are we dragging everybody else across the country and making it their problem? Here's the UCLA football coach who is uh, – who is, uh, you know, telling a lot of truth. Notre Dame is an independent in football, but they're in a conference for everything else. Why aren't we all independent for football? And take the 64 teams in Power 5, make that one division. Take the 64 teams in Cooper 5, make that another division. We play for a championship, they play for a championship. No one else gets affected. Our sport's different than everybody else. We only play once a week. Travel's not a big deal for football, but it is a big deal for other sports. So, Oh, it's, it's, too, it's too easy. That's the problem. It, it would just take... Too much common sense. Chip Kelly's got it right. All right, coming up, we're going to have our big splash. In the 4 o'clock hour, Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, will be with us. He is ready to speak out and talk about the plan at Oregon State. He's obviously frustrated. He's trying to find some footing. What is the plan? Does it involve George Klyovkov at all? What is the role of the Pac-12 commissioner in anything that happens? And how much time does Oregon State have? With Stanford and Cal flirting with the ACC, how long can Oregon State and Washington State afford to sit back and watch this happen before they have to go and do what's best for themselves? Like they say on the airplane, you put your oxygen mask on first, then help the person beside you. I'll ask Scott Barnes all those questions and more coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Well, the building at uh, 315 Park Avenue South has got a new, uh, I guess, advertisement. Is that what we call it on the side of it? It normally has movies that are, that are put uh, put on the side of that building in Manhattan. And uh, normally you'll see, like, over the years there have been uh, Anthony Hopkins movies and Richard Gere movies and The Time Traveler's Wife has been on there and Robert Downey Jr. has been on there for a variety of movies and um, but um, in the last 48 hours, University of Oregon quarterback Bo Nix has taken his place on the side of the building at 315 Park Avenue South. And uh, a lot of people are wondering um, how this will go this season for Bo Nix. I think it's pretty cool that Oregon does this kind of stuff. It's splashy. It's different. I'm sure it costs an arm and a leg, but they're in it for it, you know, and they're uh, they're into it. And it, and it sort of signals to recruits that, hey, you could end up on the side of a building in, in New York City. And uh, Bo Nix on the side of that building, and I'm kicking myself because I saw like some early images on Twitter of that going up on the side of the building. And, you know, we've got some correspondents in New York City who have worked on this show and whatnot, and I, I'm kicking myself for not reaching out going, hey, run over there and take a picture of that thing when it's uh, finished and done this morning. I have tweeted out a photograph of it. Uh, it says Bodacious. It's got Bo Nix in uniform kind of you're seeing his back and you know it's just it's another recruiting tool another marketing tool for the university of oregon it's it's not joey harrington at times square but it's pretty close judah do you think this is a cool thing that's oregon's doing does it uh does it turn you off what does it do for you it's interesting that they chose to do it with Bo, you know and maybe it's with the big 10 stuff but i'm i'm figuring that you know, they had to reserve this like long in advance of all that. Joey, Portland kid, Oregon through and through, senior year, 2001, you know, all this momentum. Bo, this is a little bit of a different, you know, profile, is it not? I mean, Oregon's, you know, just 
wrapping their arms around him and trying to get him to New York. I mean, is it now now Heisman campaign or is it just yes. a recruiting ploy? Oh, I think it's I think it's a Heisman campaign. Twenty years, more than twenty years later, after Joey Heisman, yeah. in two thousand one. But you're walking around Manhattan, you're going to see Bo Nix going up in the city that never sleeps. It's and pretty it, awesome. That that's th- pretty yeah. cool, though. I, I would agree with that. And like you, you were just in New York not long ago, so you can visualize it um, pretty seamlessly. You know, I've I've walked around that that very area uh, a time or two myself, so I can feel that. And it's great to have you know an Oregon brand up there. What do you think? the language master that you are, of the marketing word bodacious. I like it. I think it's all right. I'm not going to question the Nike marketing uh, people. I think they they know better than I do. But I think the the bigger thing is, I think it's got a, it's got like there's, this is a three-pronged thing. Because on one hand, I think the reason why it resonates so much, particularly for people in the Pacific Northwest, to see this happening is we feel forgotten or ignored in the Pacific Northwest. And I think splashing Joey Heisman or Bodacious in New York City is, you know, in your face. You can't ignore what's happening in the Pacific Northwest. I think there's an element to it, and I think it's why the, that resonated in 2001 when all of a sudden Joey Harrington's at Times Square. And, you know, I there, there's that famous uh, magazine cover of The New Yorker, and I literally have a copy of that magazine cover in my studio and it it is man the view from manhattan and it basically shows all the buildings in new york city then it shows the hudson river and then beyond that there's nothing like that nothing exists beyond the hudson river and so it's a reminder to us all when bodacious or joey heisman gets put up in new york city it's a reminder to us all that this is kind of the anti we're going to fly under the radar, we're okay being in the Pacific Northwest sentiment. It's all Nike-driven. It's all just do it. It's all bow nose. It's bodacious. And I think I think they had a, a problem in that they had to dovetail off of bow nose without doing bow nose. So I think bodacious <laughs> works in that way. And and it's not his face. It's the back of his jersey. It just It's a signal that, hey, something's coming. Pay attention. Do not o- ignore. And, oh, by the way, the... The downtown athletic club is not that far from that building, and it's it's a message one about you can't ignore the Pacific Northwest in Oregon football. Two, it's a Heisman campaign launch for sure because it just comes you know in the run up to the college football season. And look, as a media member over the years, I've I've been on the receiving end of a number of lame Heisman campaigns. You know they'll send you like a mouse pad. With a player, they'll send you a notepad, they'll send you a thumb drive, they'll send you a pen, you know, so-and-so for Heisman. Um, you know, and that's all cool, but it's like these, it's like stupid tchotchkes that get sent out, and all of a sudden, Oregon's going, eh, we're just going to buy a building. And, you know, and they, and they put Bo Nix on the side of the building, or Joey Harrington on the side of the building. So I think it's a very in-your-face, big-time move. So you got the Heisman element, you have the marketing piece of it, and then beyond that, you, you've got just the Nike, you know, a reminder to recruits who may be thinking about going to Oregon that you have the power of the Nike marketing machine on your side when you join Oregon. And in a world of NIL, where your brand becomes everything, hell, the Colorado football players are putting their Twitter and Instagram handles on the backs of their jerseys during practice. It's kind of tacky. But Oregon's going, hey, you don't need to do that. 
we're going to put you on a building. Like, you know, if you go to Oregon, you have a chance to be on the building in New York City. Like, it's it's just a, it's a, uh, it's an awesome show of the force and the power of Nike marketing and Oregon football. And I think it's uh, a win, win, win in a number of ways. And it's another example of how Oregon just does things better than other schools. They just do. Yeah, it's, and, it's quite yeah. the flex that's unique to the Ducks. And Phil probably only needs to make a handful of calls to, to make something like that happen. Can you only do this once every two decades, though? I mean, are you surprised they didn't do it with Dixon or Masoli or Herbert? They didn't do this with Marcus. They chose to do it with Bo. I kind of wonder. I think the game's changed. And I think the game was changing in 2001 when they put Harrington on the side of the building. You know, I I did not arrive in the state of Oregon until December of 2002, but I remember that going up in Times Square, and it was an announcement of Oregon football wanting to matter on a national level. It wasn't just about getting Joey Harrington to the downtown athletic club and trying to make him a finalist and buy some votes and get some recognition. It was an announcement that Oregon football was ready to matter. And so I think the game has changed. I don't think Marcus Mariota needed the campaign. Uh, and I think, you know, we have seen a pivot in the space where name image like us, the transfer portal realignment is driving a whole bunch of attention to college football. And I think that kind of stuff can matter right now, especially with Oregon joining the Big Ten Conference next year. That kind of stuff can really register with recruits who are trying to pick USC, Michigan, Ohio State. And, you know, Michigan and Ohio State can sell something that Oregon cannot sell. They can say, we've been to the playoff. We've won national championships. We, you know, they can sell that kind of stuff. But Oregon, all they, all Oregon can sell right now is, hey, look at what we can do for your brand. And this is where we're going to matter. And I think, so I think that's why this goes up. I think it's a little bit about Bo Nix, but I think it's a lot about Oregon football. Yeah, I, I... There is some pressure to Bo, though, with this, you know, just to play a little devil's advocate, because deep down, I think it's badass. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Every broadcaster is going to say bodacious on a touchdown yeah. highlight now. And like, there's, well, it's, it's, it's so everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. And I don't, I don't think you smart. need to do it every year. You don't, yeah. I don't think you have to. I think you do it once in a while where you see the opportunity. I think it's probably cost prohibitive to try to do it every year. And even though Nike's probably behind some of this, I'm sure that Oregon's you know, you know, out, you know, some kind of resource that they could use in other ways. Like, you know, they could they could do some other things. But I think you do it every few years when you see an opportunity. And, and hell, you know, they did it for Joey Harrington, and it feels like it was yesterday. You know, doing it for Bo Nix, I don't know if you have yeah. to do it. You know, maybe you do it every five or seven or ten or twenty years, and people will remember. The Joey finished, he got to New York. He finished fourth. I think Eric Crouch won um, that year for Nebraska. You know, Bo, he's got to stay healthy. If he gets hurt early in the year, and now that just billboard is up there while he's not playing, that would be tough. So he's got to stay healthy. He's got to play well. He's got to get to New York. You know, that it's got to capitalize. Because, yeah, you're right. There's a high floor with this because of the recruiting and the marketing and all that, and the branding is wonderful. But Joey, he was a fourth-place finalist, and then his NFL career was a flop as a high draft pick. Like, I wouldn't want to see Bo go through that. And if, if Bo goes through something similar or anything close to that, he won't be that high of a pick that Joey was. But if he struggles in the NFL, like, I think we could look back on that and maybe be like, eh, maybe the hype a little bit outweighed, you know, the substance. And maybe that's, you know, not a bad thing. Maybe you're just buying it for just the hype anyway. Yeah, and and I think another thing is, you know, I, I noticed today Colorado had a fight at their practice. And Coach Prime 
came in and he yelled at some players who had walked away from the fight. And he said, if one fights, we all fight. And But the bigger thing I was noticing was that the players at practice at Colorado have got their Instagram and their Twitter handles and where their names are usually are on the backs of their jerseys. And I thought, that's kind of tacky. And I understand what Colorado's trying to do. They're telling players, hey, we're going to help your brand. We're going to elevate you. There's a lot of cameras on you, a lot of eyeballs on you. But it's a little XFL-like, you know. And I thought, gosh, Oregon just outclassed them so badly just by throwing up a billboard and going, hey, you know what, athletes, we're also going to promote you. And we don't need to stoop to having at Bo Nix on the back of your jersey. You know, we're going to we're just going to put Bo Nix in New York City on the side of a building. I just Uh, love how Dion's like, I'm old school. I'm old school. You got to earn everything. Oh, here's your social media handle on your practice jersey. Yeah, I I look, I don't want to root against. I think he's got some I think he's got some strong messaging. I think some of what he says, a lot of what he says, I like. So a lot of there's a lot of team, there's a lot of confidence building that goes on. But I'm a little skeptical with Colorado right now. I think it could be really ugly for them this year. And I kind of wonder if Shador Sanders, like the interview I had with him, if like if he's not a leader, if he doesn't have it, uh, they're going to be in real trouble. And we'll find out come this season, of course. Scott Barnes, Oregon State Athletic Director, will join us in hour two. Leave it here. This hour, you'll hear from Oregon State Athletic Director Scott Barnes. He'll be joining us coming up uh, in uh, just a bit. I want to uh, jump through some Punch It audio. We're going to continue the discussion a little bit on Coach Prime. And is, is it possible that Colorado is already a success story? Yes. I don't know if Coach Prime needs to win a game. In order for him to say, uh, you know, it was a great season. We had a successful season. It was a great investment. But I wonder what the trajectory of Deion Sanders and Colorado is in the Big 12 Conference. If he doesn't get something this season in the win column. Three wins? Can he go three and nine? Feel good about it? Probably and then say, okay, we have we have we have to get better physically up front. We gotta recruit better. We gotta play better. One and eleven. Oh and twelve. Those are out there too. And I still would argue that Rick George, the athletic director, could go, hey, you know what? <laughs> we sold out our season tickets. Revenue's up. Life is good. Uh, much in the same way that Jonathan Smith, you know, he didn't get great success in his early years. He built something, though. Keep an eye on Colorado. I like a lot of what Coach Prime says. His messaging is solid in a lot of ways. Even at practice when, you know, fight breaks out and he scolds a couple players who walked away from the fight and he said, hey, one fights, we all fight. You don't leave your teammate over there. I get that. But I was also looking at that and I was like, you know what? How many fights are they going to have this season? And how many wins will they have this season? More fights than wins? Discuss. Uh, we're going to play Punch and Audio. Scott Burns will be along the Oregon State Athletic Director. He'll be here bottom of the hour at 4.30. So I want you here for it. All right, let's do it. 
We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Kyle Whittingham. He's got Cam Rising coming off an ACL injury. He's got uh, a problem at the quarterback position, and he's seemingly going to turn to his third stringer. Keep an eye on this. Brandon Rose will not be available, his backup, so it'll be Bryson Barnes if they had to play today. Punch it. Bryson Barnes is taking the majority of the reps with the ones. And uh, Nate Johnson is taking the majority of the reps with the twos. Now, when Cam is at practice, which is not every day, but most every day, then he gets uh, a fair share of the ones in certain drills as well. Nate will always have packages that uh, accentuate what his skill set is. Right, Bryson Barnes right now, if we if we had to play today, it would be Bryson Barnes. Because we're not where we need to be offensively. You know, the execution wasn't as good as it needed to be. Uh, it was the first extensive live work, so there's no panic mode yet. But uh, we've got to see improvement two days from now when we have our second scrimmage on Thursday. Big scrimmage coming up. They'll want to show improvement. I think it's a little disappointing that that Utah won't have a second stringer available. If Cam Rising can't go, it looks like it'll be Bryson Barnes, who did start one game last season. You may remember that big Thursday night game, the big fiasco. He never They never indicated who was starting at quarterback. TV got mad. Whittingham got mad. Everybody was mad. Utah opens the season two weeks from tomorrow on a Thursday in Salt Lake City. We'll be there. We'll be on the scene. I'll be checking in on this show from Rice-Eccles Stadium as the Pac-12 season gets underway. Nick Daschle covers Oregon State. DJ Uyunglele, subject of our conversation Dashiell thinks DJ is looking good and leading. Punch it. DJ has been, he, he's the guy. I mean, he just looks like the guy. He, even today in practice, I mean, it was just like he's, he, he threw like about a 45, 50-yard post to, to, to Anthony Gould, who'd, who'd, who'd beaten Jaden Robinson. And it was, just, it, was, it was just a nice-looking ball that he threw. And he threw a lot of those Saturday in the scrimmage. He just seemed to have command, and things just seemed to go right when he was out there. Things go right. He's got command. I need to see DJ complete the short passes, the gimmies, the swing passes out of the backfield. You know, the the 10-yard out. The, uh, you know, he needs to – I I saw him during the spring game miss on too many of those for me to get too far down the road with DJ Uengalele as the quarterback, but – if he has settled down, if he looks focused and feels focused, this is all good. It's all good for Oregon State. Big season. They'll open the season at San Jose State on a Sunday, a rare Sunday game in college football. But uh, they will open Sunday, September 3rd, 1230 kickoff for Oregon State. Dan Lanning says there are uh, some takeaways from their recent scrimmage, and he shared them. Punch it. Um, there was a ton of things. You know, looking back, I mean, ultimately, we want to tackle uh, better. we got to take care of the ball better. A lot of things that I walked away with saying uh, right after the scrimmage um, still hold true. 
situationally got to play a little bit better situational ball um, red area two minute for um, both sides of the ball um, but we have to stop the run better uh, defensively and have to do a better job in those situations offensively got to do things better got to catch the ball got got a block got a tackle this is what could football coaches say after scrimmages Oregon's going to be fine on the offensive side of the ball I you know I don't have a lot of questions there Bo Nix, Will Stein, the offensive coordinator. Those aren't my big questions. By the way, I'm efforting Dan Lanning for tomorrow's show. But Oregon will open their season at home against Portland State on September 2nd, 12 o'clock kickoff. The big one for Oregon and where we find out what Oregon's about is week two. They'll go to Lubbock, Texas, September 9th. That is a big game. Four o'clock kickoff, our time. In uh, an important game for the Ducks in their schedule. They win that one in week two, and I think they can get to their bye week undefeated. Herman Ho-Ching, 44 years old, died on Sunday. I wrote about him today at johnconzano.com. What a story. What a tough, tough guy. Tough life. Tough upbringing, tough guy, tough football player. Drowned on Sunday in the Clackamas River. Too many college football players and former players in our state finding uh, summer and the fatalities of summer. Todd, uh, Todd Doxley, Spencer Webb, Jesse Nash. Basketball player in 1987, drowned in the Willamette River. Herman Ho-Ching, 1998, as a freshman, comes into a game that Oregon's struggling in against the University of Texas El Paso. I talked to Mike Bellotti about this today. Bellotti told me that the fans at, at UTEP were throwing tortillas at his players on the sideline during the game. Just razzing them. UTEP was winning the game. Herman Ho-Ching came into the game. Punches. Third and goal from actually the three-yard line. They'll run it up the gut with Herman Ho-Ching. Touchdown, Oregon. Herman Ho-Ching with his first career touchdown. And Oregon is within a point after of tying this game. Now they're going to set up the screen to Herman Ho-Ching. Gets one block. Two blocks. Hurdles one man. 40, 30. Herman Ho-Ching is going to take it to the house. Jones with just one carry in his second period. Counter Trey. Ho-Ching, he's still on his feet. This is amazing. What a remarkable run by Herman Ho-Ching. Looked more like a pinball than he did a running back. Well, I was going to call him the pinball wizard. <laughs> Elton John would be proud. Watch how he protects the ball when he gets hit here, Todd. He's going to kind of curdle over it and bounce off the next guy. That's that's five points. There's five. Ding, There's ding, ten. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. Ten more. Herman Ho-Ching had 117 yards, three touchdowns in that game in 1998. Finished his college career at Oregon. Just two seasons he played with seven touchdowns. Mike Bellotti said when he was on, he was fantastic and felt like he was just scratching the surface when he left school at the University of Oregon after only two years. I did not know that he settled in the Portland metropolitan area I did not know he had uh, at least one kid who graduated, I think, from Portland State. 
He's got grandchildren. He's got children. He was living a good life. On Sunday, with temperatures and a heat advisory soaring, Herman Ho Ching uh, did what a lot of people do. He jumped into the Clackamas River. I'm told by the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department that they don't believe he struck anything in the water. It could have just been a case of shock from the hot temperature outside and the cold water in the river. I'm told he jumped multiple times into the river without incident and then jumped and did not surface. Paramedics were called. Water rescue was called. They could not revive him. Herman Ho Ching, dead at the age of 44. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. Talked to uh, Killy Smith. Talked to Mike Bellotti. Talked to Herman Ho Ching's high school coach back at uh, Long Beach Poly High School in California about what he, uh, what Herman was about and what he came from. And Mike Bellotti shared that there was a death threat against Herman Ho Ching's life when he was a freshman at Oregon. And that the FBI was involved. The FBI was called. There was some concern about possible uh, retaliation from a gang and uh, just a really messy story and Herman Ho Ching lived a uh, a good life raising his kids and grandkids and way too young at 44 years old Sean Payton Russell Wilson Kenny Fixum Kimberly Martin ESPN punch it's too early to say that right but watching that Broncos game and watching Russ, there were still moments where he looked lost. Like they took, so, it felt like they took so long to even get in the end zone. And after seeing him last year, you felt like, okay, the starters, they got to play in the preseason. We're going to see a different Russ. And then I saw a lot of what I saw last year. And then I started to get worried. And then I said, wait, pause. It's August. So it's still too early, but there are, there's reason to be still concerned because we don't know if this, if, if Sean Payton can actually fix Russ. Can he fix him? Will they end up happy, happily married, head coach, quarterback, or will Russell Wilson and Sean Payton, uh, will that relationship end in a divorce? That's a better choice of words. I think um, a lot to be determined, but I think there were bigger problems last year than Russell Wilson's play on the field for the Denver Broncos. I think it was part of the problem, but I often saw him running for his life when he was on the field. Not a lot of pass protection. And he just didn't play well. You know, he ran for his life in Seattle as well, but he just didn't play well. He looked out of rhythm. He looked uncomfortable. Maybe Sean Payton helps, but maybe having better players around him helps a little bit too. We'll keep an eye on that. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Oregon State Athletic Director Scott Barnes will be joining us at 4.30. Want you here for it. He'll be joining us coming up uh, to talk about what's next for Oregon State. I have so many questions for Barnes uh, that uh, that need to be answered. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, you're going to have to step aside when Barnes comes in for this interview, Anna. I'm okay with that. You're all right. I'm just happy I have a chair to sit in today. Yeah, that was kind of funny yesterday. For people who don't know, well, you were on this tour. You were touring around, going to beaches and spas, hanging out with the kids, hanging out with your mom. And so you were not in the studio for like a week. Mm -hmm. And a week in my world is like, it's a year. Yeah. You know? So it was like, I I didn't have you here. So I rearranged the studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything changed. Moved my seat. Yeah. 
Got multiple uh, cameras and a lot of lighting. We're going to be uh, doing some filming in here at some point of the show. And you, uh, your seat was, I guess, just eliminated. Yeah. And I didn't expect you to come in. I even put on the show sheet, Anna, to be determined. What? TBD. And so when you came in, there was nowhere for you to sit. And you very, because this is you, you're so low maintenance. You just... I just comped a squat. I comped a squat, everyone. That's what I did. I threw on the headphones, and uh, it wasn't really, there wasn't even really room to sit on the floor. I just kind of kneeled. You kneeled like you were in a Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I could not have been in any more subservient position. I felt like I should have thrown (laughs) holy water on you, you know? And said something in Latin, you know. I'm Taiwanese, so I could have like kowtowed, you know. Yeah. By the way, your mom, oh, your boy. mom was here. Speaking of Taiwanese, your mom's here. You know, you guys break into Mandarin. We do frequently in we front do. of me. Yeah. Have not, you learned it yet? Are you fluent yet? Uh, I could tell when you guys are talking about me. Yeah. But it's most of the time. But it in is that rude? Is should I should I be offended by this? Why would you be offended by it? But that? is it rude? We're never really talking about anything. Yeah, that but interesting. but it kind of suggests that you guys don't want me in on the conversation. It's just easier <laughs> since I don't speak Mandarin. That's true. We should probably <laughs> yeah. revert to being no, English. No, but if if you're more comfortable, there's some connection with your mom that you yeah. have. Mm-hmm. She speaks English. I know. But if there's some connection you have with her in that way, and she's the only person you can speak that language with, yeah, I get it. Uh-huh. Like, you know? Yeah. Like, my grandparents used to speak Italian to each other. Yeah. In our presence. Right. But generally, it was when my grandmother was pissed at my grandfather. <laughs> I bet that you know? sounded really oh, entertaining. Yeah. It was. It sounded very Italian. There's nothing, like, more uh, charming than a really ticked-off Italian woman yelling yep. at her husband. Especially a five-foot... Tall or 4'11 Italian woman. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. You know. All that staccato yep. and the vowels at the end. Ugh. But I she, it was often a look. There might have been, she might have pinched his arm. <laughs> like every once in a while she'd pinch him. Yeah, she was a pincher. Yeah, and then uh, there was uh, there was some words exchanged. I know some bad words. Yeah. I don't think I could say them. I think the FCC, if they're listening. Does that know. really count, though? If you say a bad word in another language... I think if I dropped an F-bomb on a Spanish-language radio station, yes, that would count. Huh. You know? Yeah. Don't you think, Judah? Does that count if you start Yeah, you're using, a rules guy, Judah. If you start, he's a rules guy. Uh, if you start using bad language on a foreign language, is that okay? Let's find out. <laughs> find out. Along <laughs> the end of this show. It's been a nice show. It's I been a nice run. That, but- yeah. It's been a nice run on this station. <laughs> I am curious about that, though. Like, if you if you really just laid into it, because you also know some bad words in Spanish. Yeah, but... I, like, I don't know any bad words in Mandarin, because my mom never taught them to me. You don't know any bad no, words? No, it's the most pathetic thing ever. I don't know how to Do say they have any bad, bad words. Yes, they there's have bad, bad words? words. I don't know. But I don't know how to say them. But you remember we were in New York City, we were walking down the street, and that... Asian guy walked by us and he said something to you. Yeah, he just called you an orangutan. Yeah, is that as bad as it gets? I don't. I don't even know. He looked really mad. I think he was just literal. I think he was literal. I don't think it was figurative. You think he was just saying I look like an orangutan? (laughs) I think that's something that he says about Caucasian people. Oh, maybe. You know, reverse racism. Yeah, or just racism. Slurred me right there. (laughs) Called me an orangutan, and she wouldn't tell me. I because he says something. He looks at me. He looks at her. 
older Asian guy, clearly uncomfortable that she did not marry an Asian guy. So he was clearly upset. He looks at me, looks at her. He says something to her in Mandarin. And he's passing the opposite direction. We're near Times Square. So it's like a sea of people. It's like a Where's Waldo game as I whip around. And I said to Anna, what did he say? And she goes, "Ah, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Don't worry about it. And then we go about another 40 or 50 feet. And I said, ah, come on. What did he say? And she said, ah, he called you an orangutan. And I whipped around. I was going to go after him. I'm like, who are you calling an orangutan? <laughs> but I don't know if I was gonna, what I was going to do when I find him. He was like yeah. a 70-year-old Chinese man. What were you really going to do? You know? 70-year-old Chinese man is a dangerous man. Yeah. If I you think about it. Secretly? No. If you think about it, he's a da- that's a dangerous man. Why? Because I, there's no upside for me. If I clobber him on the streets of New York City, I'm beating up a 70-year-old Asian man. It's true. That goes viral. It's not a good look for me. If he happens to be like Jackie Chan, he might, you know, leg sweep me, <laughs> chop me, elbow to the sternum, and all of a sudden that's viral too. There's no winning that one for me. Mm. You know? Good point. So yeah. he probably walks around Times Square all day long calling people orangutans just waiting to pick a fight. You know? That's his moment. When you get to a certain age, you do get like inherit that right to say stuff that other people can't say right i don't know i don't know what that age depends what those things are (laughs) but we do see some older folks who will push the envelope in that way yeah you know i don't know what that cutoff is but as it pertains to uh scott barnes is coming up and i'm excited about this interview oregon state uh athletic director they've got to be frustrated they're looking for direction can they trust stanford and cal if they want to rebuild the pac-12 how angry are they? Will they play Oregon in the Civil War game moving forward? Do they want to play that game? Is that even on their mind right now? Um, what else? George Klyovkov, is he, is he involved at all? Is he, is he just the commissioner in name at this point, or is he involved at all with the four remaining schools? Um, what else? Um, is, it a, uh, is the Mountain West and the American, are those total fallback plans for Oregon State at this point? All of that, Scott Barnes coming up. Leave it here. It bothered me that the uh, Pac-12 conference dissolved or disintegrated uh, in some form uh, a couple of Fridays ago. Oregon and Washington leaving to the Big Ten conference, uh, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah and Colorado off to the Big 12. A lot of questions for the remaining four schools, Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford and Cal. Here to talk about the Oregon State perspective, Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, is joining us. Thanks for making time, Scott. Good, good to be here with you, John. It's been a little while. Um, yeah, great, great to hear your voice and to be on with you. Well, thanks for doing that. I think there's a lot of Oregon State stakeholders, fans, alumni who are interested in what happens next. Um, you know, let's start with that. Where, where's kind of the the mindset right now at Oregon State? Yeah, John. There, there's a reason that you know the Pac-12 has succeeded for you know the the the. Uh, decade after decade, and and it's certainly something that the tradition and history of we want to we want to honor and keep, and and the best path forward to keep the Pac-12 together is to to have the four uh, remaining schools uh, come together and and chart a course uh, uh, forward. So our highest and best opportunity is to do that, um, and and uh, that's where our focus is. The you know you you mentioned the four schools Washington State Oregon State often lumped together, and Cal and Stanford lumped together. Can, are you feeling solidarity with those with those other three? 
how much conversation has there been between the four remaining schools? Uh, quite a bit of conversation, for sure. Um, given the circumstances, uh, Washington State and Oregon State have been uh, all in all the time, um, you know, trying to uh, scenario plan what could be next. <clears throat> and, and, and while Cal and Stanford are, I would say, uh, coming towards uh, uh, very soon a decision on, on uh, either moving a different direction if they have that opportunity or um, – Entrenching themselves with with Washington State, Oregon State, and uh, making making a go of it uh, in terms of rebuilding the Pac-12, and so I think all that, John, is <clears throat> I don't think that's weeks away. I think that's days away. Days away. Um, it feels that way that Stanford's got to make a decision. You guys need to you need to start moving in a direction. Uh, speak to that a little bit. What's involved in that? Why why is it so important that you find direction sooner rather than later? Well, if, if you back up, John, it's, a, it's an excellent question. You think about the practical application of what we do. Let's start with scheduling, right? And and football in particular, you think about all of us who have games uh, throughout the uh, uh, 2030s, right? And, and there's not a lot of availability. So uh, having a decision made, uh, uh, bringing in the right partners, both from a media perspective and an expansion perspective and and, and understanding uh, what we have to work with and how we're moving forward, all that has to be sorted out. And, and the sooner that we can uh, row the road about the same direction, the four of us, the sooner we can get to answering uh, some of the questions we have, whether it's around governance, uh, the rights and assets we may own, uh, or uh, the expansion piece and, and, and media partners. All of those questions need to be answered. And the best way to do that is obviously with all four uh, committing uh, to move forward together. And, I again, I think I say all that and tell you, I think we're very close to having uh, an understanding of where all that sits. All right. So if I've learned anything in the last year, I had presidents, I had involved parties who are now headed to other conferences. Tell me, point blank, we're in, we're committed. Can you trust anybody in today's world of college athletics, or how how has that felt to you guys being involved in in that kind of uh, ecosystem? Yeah, you know, it, it brings up a even a sort of a broader question, and that I think that has a lot to do, frankly, with media companies and their control uh, over um, conferences and 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 the invasiveness of their. Um, of their involvement um, and and the power that they have uh, wielded in the process. And that changes the game for everybody as it relates to where things sit. And it's, it's an actually, I think an awful place to be in, in the state of where we are, because what college athletics, uh, John, as you know, was founded on, it was founded on, it was founded on regional regionality, regional rivals, uh, and, and um, geography, and, and that's out, out the window completely. And with it, um, when you think about uh, the, the media companies that have been involved, the last thing on their list of things to think about is, is the welfare of the student-athlete. It just is. And so uh, we're in this spot. It's an ugly spot to be in. And so your, your question as it relates to trusting, you know, 
uh, those those that are most like us, uh, we have the same goals and, and the same path. Washington State and Oregon State have uh, much in common in terms of market size and, and the like. Um, so, you know, our our hope is that uh, there's finality to the Stanford Cal uh, decision, and we think there will be soon. And we're hopeful that that uh, leads us to work together. And and time will tell, but time, the clock is absolutely ticking. If the four can stay together, you've got some assets, you've got intellectual property, you've got some NCAA tournament distributions. There's an emergency fund. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much is in there, but in the last fiscal filing, I think it showed like 44 million dollars. Can you give us a sense of, you know, the war chest that the four schools would have at their disposal to try to attract new members or? or maybe subsidize themselves moving forward? Yeah, John, that, that is uh, the question of the day. Is, as we think about a path forward and, and we think about the members that remain, four of us remain, we are the voting block of the Pac-12, uh, what are those rights? And, and um, legal experts will help define um, what rights we have to a lot of assets. And, and those are some of the questions we're seeking because you're exactly right. Those, uh, in, in any way you want to use those, uh, those, those things you mentioned, and I'll add Pac-12 Network, I'll add Bull, Bull Alliances, I'll, you, know, you can add uh, several other assets, but all of that uh, we need to determine clearly um, uh, you know, what our, what our uh, rights are to that because that, coupled with whatever media deal might be out there and able to craft with, with say, a, a conference of eight. Um, those are the levers we need to pull, and that's the leverage we have, both those, the rights to those assets and um, a, a potential evaluation of, a, of a, a new media deal, whatever that looks like. Oliver Luck, uh, you know, I had reported that he is working on behalf of all four schools is he driving? Is he helping drive this conversation, or is it, is it a George Klyovkov involvement? Where does the role of Oliver Luck and George Klyovkov begin and end in your world right now? Right now, John, we we are uh, you know Washington State and Oregon State are joined at the hip. We're we're in uh, continual conversation with Stanford and Cal as recently as uh, this afternoon. Um, we'll continue that dialogue. Um, helping them get to, to where they're at. But uh, George has not been involved in our path forward at all um, to this point. Um, and I, I'll just tell you that's a presidential decision in terms of what his role may be um, moving forward. And so uh, certainly that will be further further discussed and, and um, uh, obviously with George, and, and we'll, we'll see what that looks like moving forward. But uh, not that has yet to be determined. Scott Barnes with us, Oregon State Athletic Director. I mean, it it has been it's been a hell of a year. I mean, there's no other way to put it. You you know, for people who don't know, you know, you were at uh, you were being honored at Fresno State when you had that heart incident, and you know, by by miracle of God, you've got heart team, a cardiac team on the scene, and you go through that. You come back amid the negotiation, the conferences spiraling i just from a personal standpoint it's it's had to have felt like you know an unreal a surreal year for you it's been it's been a tough one and we've had tough ones before i jonathan and i were sitting on my back deck having a cold beverage the other night talking about 
that first year together. And, and we were, we were dealt a really bad deck of cards. My, my football coach walked off the job five games in and uh, we're maybe the worst program, if you'll remember, in, in all of college football. And uh, we found a way forward and, and we will, we will find a way forward again in terms of my health. Um, I got to tell you, John, I'm pretty excited. I am at my college playing weight right now and, and uh, feel great. No, no limitations there. So we'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll navigate this. We'll put our student athletes in the best uh, and highest position we can um, and, and uh, come out of this uh, with, with some opportunities. It, it gives you a perspective, right? I mean, you know, you, you, you look up and you got your family there. You're still here. Like, you know, and, and you, you have that perspective of going through it with Jonathan Smith in that year after Gary Anderson and, and getting back to a position where you could win 10 games a year ago. I know a lot of Beaver fans are concerned about, you know, what the uncertainty could do to your roster with the transfer portal, mm-hmm. Coach Coach Smith, Jonathan's contract. Are you concerned at all that, you know, you need is, – is part of the urgency, I guess, because you need to give answers to your coaching staff, your, your recruiters, your current roster? Yeah, I think we all want clarity on this issue, including Beaver Nation, right, and, and... – uh, everybody wants clarity that, that, uh, you know, there's comfort in understanding what your path forward is for sure. Um, and, and we'll, uh, you know, we're, yeah, I, I think, I think back and I've, I've shared this with my coaches and that's look, when you think about this last year and the narrative around conference realignment and we lose USC, we use UCLA, there's talk about the four corners league the whole year. I mean, that, that was going on the whole year. And I'll just give you an anecdote. We had uh, two top 50 volleyball recruits on our campus the day that this hit with the uh, Washington-Oregon decision, and, and it all crumbled that Friday. And we had two of the top recruits in our history on campus. They, ver- they committed to us. And, and I say that because what we have to lean into, John, is our culture, the, the, the coaches, the excellent coaches, the facilities. Uh, this place is a special place, and the people that walk the halls of this special place. And Ultimately, decisions are made by recruits on those items. Yes, conference affiliation is really important. I don't think it's the most important thing. Does this is this a punch in the gut to um, our students? Yeah, but we've had students. Uh, we've had fewer students enter the portal than than many of our places, even in this rough patch for a year. And I still believe that leaning into who we are. Uh, what we deliver, the culture of this place, the people that are here, uh, means a ton to recruits as they come in. Now, we've got to have those answers. Uh, we have to have the answers on where we're playing and what that looks like. And we'll get them real soon. We need them for the reasons we've discussed. But that's not the only decision that, that recruits uh, uh, use in their, in their um, fi- final analysis of where they're headed. Give me a 20,000-foot view from you. You've been in college athletics for a long time. you played there as a player. You've been an administrator. You've been in multiple conferences. Where is this headed? And strategically, you know, you, you talk about a four, the four teams rebuilding. I think that's inspiring, right? But I kind of wonder, okay, but in 2028, 2029, what happens again? You know, what do you think's going on with college football, college athletics? There's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, I think. I think you know. Will there be buyer's remorse for folks who made the decision to to travel across the country and in five or six years may they be thinking about coming back? I think, to your point, because this is so dynamic, John, 
the landscape is so dynamic, and, and not only conference alignment, but the evolution of name, image, likeness, the Alston uh, hearing, the transfer portal, all of those things, the creeping of, of, uh, uh, of you know, places like uh, – um, the G League Ignite and some of those other leagues that are creeping up and taking uh, top college prospects. There's a lot of pressure on the system right now, and and it will it will continue to change. So I think as we think about the Pac-12 and rebuilding it, one of the things we need to be thinking about is how nimble we can be uh, in the next few years to capture any opportunities that come our way. And that could be in or out. That can be uh, various uh, combinations of that. But as we think about reconstructing this, we want to think about some flexibility so that we can build on it um, or that we can move and, and uh, be nimble enough to react to the latest um, opportunities that may be out there. And I think that that's something we need to craft into whatever, whatever we do moving forward. The University of Oregon, University of Washington, as it headed to that Friday morning meeting with the CEO group, it appeared that everything was going to stay together, and then all of a sudden it did not. How angry were you? How frustrated were you? And, you know, and as that unfolded, were you surprised by it? Look, we we uh, we had a meeting on, uh, yeah, that started that week with a what I would refer to as almost a kumbaya meeting on a Monday night. Uh, ahead of the board meeting and AD meeting on, on, or the board meeting on Tuesday morning. And we were all in, hands in the ring. We, we got pitched the, uh, we all got pitched. We were in that meeting as well Tuesday, the $23 million Apple deal. And, and I will tell you, it took a couple days to get our heads around it. But I'll also say in the same breath, John, that there was, there was some big time opportunity there. Now, might we have been a, about a year ahead in terms of all in on, on streaming? Yeah, maybe. But there was unbelievable growth. And as you know, what's happening in linear television right now, uh, it is dropping. Homes are dropping like flies. Uh, there isn't any demographic growing in the linear space. So we got comfortable with that by Thursday. So to answer your question, by Thursday night, this thing was done. We were. There hadn't been an offer from the uh, – I don't believe there had even been an offer in my, my calls to my colleagues at that point, and this was going to get done. Even with the offers, this was going to get done. I don't know what switched it, but let me tell you that when you make a somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction that late in the game when you were in, uh, based on the numbers you saw, and you were in, and then all of a sudden you're not, I think there might be some buyer's remorse down the line. And for me, um, that that is – you know, people ask, well, would somebody else have taken that and, and run with it if they're offered? No. The, the answer is no, because we had something that was going to be uh, successful right here in a regional lineup with a, a 100-year-old conference. So, no, we could have made it work, and we could have actually closed the gap on, on the SECs and the Big Ten um, situation, looking through rose-colored glasses, if this would have worked out. Um, the schools that we had, and, and oh, by the way, we got better, not worse, when Colorado left. We had a chance uh, to add a member that would have made us better. And, and that group uh, could have got some things done, and that's what we were all thinking we were headed towards. So, yeah, furious, as I've said, um, mad at, at, at the, the moment for sure, but channeling that energy to what's next, and, and that's where we're going to go. And we're fighting for our student-athletes, and 
we're going to do everything we can to put him in the best position. Um, and I do not believe that was, was the best position when other options were available uh, and, and um, for student-athletes. And um, it, just, it just is what it is. So we, we now we pick up the pieces and we go get something done. Oregon calls tomorrow, says they want to play you in 2024, 2025, helps them on the travel front. Do you play the game? I'm not ready to make that commitment. And, and it's, a lot of it has to do with where we sit and what we're trying to build out and, and what might even be available um, to, to do to, to, um, for a schedule. So I'm, I'm not ready for that commitment. Scott Barnes, Oregon State Athletic Director, is with us. Uh, uh, appreciate you doing this interview. There's so many other questions I have. And, you know, as it pertains to your budget, let's start there. You know, it, you've got a budget I think is right around $95 million. If the short-term, you know, distribution that you can create with a new conference doesn't meet what you're used to, how do you make up that get, that revenue gap? Yeah, no, that's, that's the question of the day. And, uh, you know, might, might assets from the Pac-12 uh, – assist in that regard uh, may might there be some other institutional or state funds available given the harm that was done and in, in uh, the revenue loss uh, there's there's a lot of things that we're going to explore as it relates to that but but with this in mind to to keep uh, to keep the funding at a level that helps our student athletes excel and we we talk all the time about the holistic experience they have and we want to deliver an incredible experience for our student athletes and, and it does take funding. And so we're working, working to answer those questions right now, because the reality of it is, John, you said it, uh, whatever it is, it's going to be less than it is now. I also think, you know, you need a media rights deal. Do you, and I guess the NCAA, as I understand it, it will give you a two year grace period to, to sort of fill in eight schools or 10 schools or whatever you'd ultimately like to be at. What, in your mind, what's what's the right number of schools for a rebuilt Pac-12 conference? If that if that is Plan A, yeah, you know, I think you know when when you talk about expansion, you, you talk about two things. You talk about you, you talk about um, security, right? You, you talk about uh, protection, and you talk about uh, you talk about revenue. And um, for us, I think there's another uh, in today's new world of college athletics. There's another consideration that's flexibility, and I think the smaller the group, perhaps uh, you know, at, at, at a twenty thousand foot level, uh, the more nimble one can be, the more um, advantageous a smaller group may be in terms of seizing other opportunities in the future. And at the same time, you want that sweet spot. You want you want us you want security. You know, you want you want to make sure you do that. I you know, if if you're trying to uh, tell me exactly what. I don't know, but I, I tell you, eight to ten is, is where I would land, and, and I'm not afraid at all of eight uh, to start with um, as a group. That would in football that would cause you if you're at eight, you probably have to add an extra non-conference game. Is that become a challenge, or do you look around the big sky and go, hey, there's there's willing partners there? Yeah, you know, you've got to. I think you've got to retool your philosophy for us right now. You know, we want to play a. a, a uh, out of out of conference power five every year we can we want we'll play an fcs we'll play a group of five and you know you, you're gonna have to add so you may you may, may have to take a different route um in, in terms of how you get there um so those are things 
that we've been working on um, for the last few days, uh, week, and we continue to work on uh, uncovering every single football scheduling opportunity there is uh, out there um, early and late in terms of uh, in the near future and, and, and later on. We're, we're analyzing all of that right now as we speak. And that, to your point, that helps inform uh, maybe where you end up landing. I don't think it's, it's the driving force, but it certainly helps you inform your final decision. Yeah, you mentioned it'll be a matter, you know, it's, it's days, not weeks, when you find out, hey, how committed are Stanford and Cal to a rebuild? And, you know, I know that in the background people have said, hey, the ACC, the Big Ten, is it is it just kind of par for the course, part of the ball game that you expect or you accept the risk that two years from now, 18 months from now, 36 months from now, the Big Ten could open their arms and call for Stanford or Cal, and you may run the risk of, hey, being right back where you are today. Is, is, that, is that what you have to accept in today's world? It is. Yeah, it is. And, and let, let's, take care, let's take care of today, put the best opportunities together, uh, commit to each other for a, a number of years um, with a, a media rights deal and a grant of rights that, that probably has a little more flexibility than, than in other grant of rights circumstances. And again, I say that to, for all of us to, to be able to capture opportunities. I look at it more that way than, than the fear of uh, somebody leaving yeah. again. All of it, all of it's uh, out there and, and could happen. But I, I think more about the opportunities than I do the, the fear of losing somebody. All right. Uh, one last question. You know, as, as I look at the 20,000 foot view, I say, okay, there, there could be more realignment, more chaos as some of these other conferences move towards new media rights deals in 2029, 2030, 2031, 2034. What can Oregon State do to make itself more attractive? Because you can't change your media market, but what things can you do to position Oregon State to be in a more advantageous position when and if this ever happens again and there's, a, there's another flurry of realignment? Uh, have a consistent football program that you know we believe we're on track for that. We don't have a long history here in recent years um, we've had a wonderful history overall but uh, stabilizing the football program um, at a very high level and and then uh, uh, building an building an airport in Corvallis would be helpful there you go, <laughs> there you go. hey Scott I really appreciate you coming on and, and speaking to your stakeholders thanks for doing this absolutely we'll talk again soon John take care okay there he is Scott Barnes Oregon State Athletic Director a lot to digest there I'll unpack it after the break Scott Barnes sounded focused and simultaneously frustrated by the events of the last couple of weeks. Oregon State's athletic director, uh, if you heard it last hour, spoke one-on-one with me. Wide-ranging interview there, largely centering around the big questions. What now? And can anyone in college athletics athletics be trusted? Scott Barnes... uh, I want to break down what he said. Anna, you heard the interview, but, you know, he talked about the conversations he's had with Stanford, Cal, and Washington State. He talked about the ugly time media companies driving college athletics. Talked about the Oregon equation. Would he be willing to play Oregon? I asked Scott Barnes. The Ducks called and said, hey, we want to play you. 2024, 2025, save us an airline trip. I'm not ready to make that commitment. And, and it, a lot of it has to do with 
where we sit and what we're trying to build out and, and what might even be available um, to, to do to, to um, for a schedule. So I'm, I'm not ready for that commitment. No, it doesn't sound like it's ready to do the Ducks any favors. There is kind of a loss there, though, if they play it that way. You know, there's a chance Oregon doesn't want to play this game either. I think Oregon would want to, though, given the uh, geography and the fact that they're 